Hey climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Climb by VSC. I'm your host, Jacob Poor. Today, I am thrilled to have on our show, Lior Susan, who is an investor, entrepreneur, now the founder and managing partner of Eclipse Ventures, which is a Palo Alto-based VC fund that has raised most recently $1.2 billion across their two recent funds. What I love about Eclipse is because uh, it overlaps with a lot of the things that I love investing in. Uh, they're a team of operators and investors that are backing companies that are disrupting legacy industries. Lior, we can dive into what some of that means. Uh, and you started this fund, uh, I guess, almost eight, nine years ago to meet the unique needs of these entrepreneurs. So I'm excited to talk about that journey and everything you've learned along the way. Right now, I'll just start by saying thank you so much for joining me on Climb. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure being here. And uh, thank you say eight years, and I'm like, it has been eight years. Uh, <laughs> that, that time flies, huh? <laughs> I know, I know. Exactly. Well, I hinted at some of your your kind of rich and varied yeah. career paths. So maybe let's let's start there. Uh, you were investing as an angel. You were investing with some funds. Talk to us about the thesis of Eclipse Ventures and maybe a little bit about the stage and focus and that kind of stuff before we dive into the history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I left uh, Flex in the beginning of uh, 2015 to start Eclipse with uh, a single mission that I felt uh, operating as an operator in physical industries that naturally carrying most of the world GDP, so more like a, more than 80% of $100 trillion is in old line industries, physical industries, same terminology, uh, everything from manufacturing, industrial, energy, agriculture, uh, supply chain, defense, etc. And I just saw on the field that there is lack of investment uh, and lack of investors that understand how to build those companies. And I felt we're going to see a lot of Teslas and SpaceX, and I want to be on that side. Yeah, and uh, in terms of where you guys typically come in, uh, stage and check size and working with your companies, you know, help us understand that. Yeah, so uh, we're managing now about 4.3 billion, uh, 25 uh, people at the firm. As you uh, highlight, uh, Jay, we are all operators that came from companies like Teslas and SpaceX and Amazon and Samsara and Apple and others. Um, and we usually coming from, we have uh, what we call venture equity. This is, we will work with a founder to build a company. So that's the earlier that we will go. Uh, then we focus, we have a team or thesis focusing on an early stage. We'll lead rounds and seed series A, series Bs. And we also have a growth fund that can come later stage uh, and lead rounds in series C and above. Uh, I would say we operate as a one team, but we have uh, two pools of capital that allow us to build and do early stage and also compound and do a later stage. Yeah. So as um, our listeners can probably pick up uh, from your accent, your uh, your <laughs> background is Israeli. You grew up on a kibbutz and uh, <laughs> you served in the IDF. And so um, talk to me about kind of that background going going back to those days. Are there a couple of lessons that you take from those formative experience that have now defined how you're, you're investing uh, in companies today? Yeah, I said that uh, it's not the typical uh, person that you will find doing investments. No, I didn't go to business school. I was not a principal in another film. I grew up in a kibbutz and I spent, uh, spent uh, almost eight years of the special forces as a soldier. Um, I would say probably two uh, learnings that I 
had in both cases um, that I think is very reflectable to doing companies and building uh, um, um, early stage companies and then grow those businesses and also on the investing side. I would say from the kibbutz point of view, it's uh, freedom. Uh, people don't lock the door. You don't know that this is community. You actually don't lock the door uh, of the house. It's open. Yeah. Uh, and kids like me will go and walk uh, while going to school. So you actually one day a week, you're actually going to walk rather than go to school. In my mm. case, in the age of 16, I decided that it's enough school for me. And I went to <laughs> walk only for two years. Uh, but there is a lot of independency and a lot of freedom that I think is it's training the muscle of uh, this idea of taking big risks and trust your your instincts and your judgment that I think it's very relevant uh, in the world of startups and and doing things around technology. Uh, for me, so that was the kibbutz. I did the military uh, leadership naturally. So I led the team yeah. at the special forces and variety of stages, variety of tasks and. Um, there is nothing better than leadership than managing uh, 11, 12 people that needs to operate very far away from home uh, with a lot of risks. Uh, so uh, I think taking risks and leadership are something that is very, very relevant to our business. Yeah, and we've, uh, in our fund, backed a, a few entrepreneurs uh, out of uh, Tel Aviv and, and in Haifa. Oh, nice. And, you know, one of the interesting things I've, I've noticed is, again, because of the military service, there's a lot of folks that come from there. But a lot of co-founders are actually made there. And it, it, to me, it seems like, you know, folks find uh, people with naturally aligned inclinations when they're uh, they're spending all those times together. You know, it's uh, there's nothing uh, than building a bond by uh, doing navigation with someone for one week uh, with 70 <laughs> kilo on your back. Uh, exactly. There's a lot of bond building. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I also talked about the fact that, you know, you are operators and uh, mm -hmm. your, your background, um, you had the journey of, of building Intucell, which you later sold uh, to Cisco before mm -hmm. you started Clips Ventures. You know, I, I love speaking to investors who were operators. I think there's a natural empathy that also the founders really kind of look to. Was there something that was unconventional that ended up working for you in, in your journey as an operator that you now apply when you're meeting or advising founders as an investor? Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's. Uh, it goes back a little bit to 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 the roots, and you know, the notion of uh, leadership and take, taking risks. When we did the Intucell, I did it with my young brother. Talking about that, uh, naturally having a bond with your co-founder. Yes, uh, that's a, that's a blood bond. Um, and we flew to meet AT and T. That was turn out the bank our largest customer, but before they were a customer, and we brought with us a server, and we show up to the meeting with a server. And as you will expect, uh, you have those two Israelis, broken English, terrible accents, showing up to a meeting with a server. Yeah. And the guy had this shit face of like, what is this thing? How did you, and I mean, was it in a suitcase? How did you bring it over? We, no, it didn't fit the suitcase. We brought it in, in a cardboard box. And we <laughs> dragged that things on this little trolley. Um, and he's like, what is this thing? We told them, oh, we brought the server so we can do the deployments for the POC. He was like, this is the first <laughs> meeting I have with you people. You didn't even start the, the diligence. We didn't even do legal. We barely signed an NDA. What do you mean doing the POC? And we told them, listen, all of our savings are in these servers. And we convinced him to meet with us. We extend the trip to a one full week. And that yeah. in the end of that week, that server was being deployed inside their lab showing what we are doing from Software Defined Network 
that server became a 50 million dollar deal over five years uh, with AT&T that essentially was the, the reason that Cisco bought the company. Yeah, so, I, I, I love know, that story. Yeah, it's just hustle and uh, taking risks were worthwhile in this business. Yeah, I, I, I love that story because I think, um, you know, a lot of seed investors, there's a cliche that you say that uh, you back the founder, right? You want to fall in love with the company and the idea, but ultimately you're going to back the founder. And it's it's always hard to to know, does this founder have, res, you know, resilience and grit and creativity? And it's stories like that to me that go, yeah, I don't think anybody would have doubted your your grit and resilience if you're going to bring a server and push your meeting out in order to try to close a deal. It's a fine line of being uh, batshit crazy and have uh, carriage uh, and grit. <laughs> it's, it is a fine line. So talking a little bit about um, the, the thesis of Eclipse and kind of the companies that, that you're looking at, um, I heard you say this amazing thing. You said, we are at the end of an era of globalization. And you just came mm -hmm. back from DC as we were chatting uh, before we got on the call. And the idea that the that firms that are investing with a global viewpoint are naturally going to struggle in the next decade. So uh, elaborate on that for me. What what do you mean by this end of globalization? Yeah, we after uh, we did Intucell, actually uh, moved to Walker for uh, a guy named Mike McNamara, and he was a CEO of a company called Flextronics or Flex, and they're like the American version of Foxconn, so very large um, industrial manufacturing. And I was focusing on the digital transformation or build the digital transformation team. And we flex operate in these 12 segments that are describing physical industries, automotive, aerospace and defense, energy, uh, um, um, uh, mining and construction, etc. And we will work with the largest companies in the world. And you saw those industries essentially kind of post-World War II um, having a very big dependency on globalization. Actually, what allowed the GDP to grow from, I don't know, 50 trillion to 100 trillion dollar in a matter of uh, 30 years was because we went global. We throw our manufacturing in a low cost, we find customers uh, elsewhere, and we became this very global community that people are operate these very large industries with a lot of dependency on other countries because labor uh, cost or because uh, scale or because they're, they're, they're like big customers. U.S. usually was the customer. That deal of globalization is good only for certain of country. A name the few will be a China um, that actually just find a very large customers called United States that bringing a lot of GDP growth to their country calls manufacturing. And they were able to build the fastest growing economy in human history by this single deal. Now, that deal works well long term with both sides winning. And I think U.S. won as well because the, our economy was growing and we were enjoying, as a consumer, be able to buy things cheaper. That yep. deal is just not working in the last 10 years. Um, and as a result, you are seeing countries deciding that those physical industries are national security assets. And as a result, I came from D.C. last night. Uh, they are going to put, in the case of the Canada administration, $1.2 trillion dollars into the Chips Act, Semiconductor, DOE, or LPO, to the Department of Energy, manufacturing, onshoring. Uh, they basically going to put a lot of capital to build a domestic infrastructure that moving from globalization to essentially deglobalization. So talking about the idea that this is actually a national defense challenge and, and, and issue, 
you know, what becomes interesting to me is that for so long, VCs have avoided interacting with anything government. And I think yep. in, in both of the categories that we as a fund cover, and I know that you cover industrial automation, climate adaptation, it seems like we are kind of on a collision course with all things government, whether it's at the local level in terms of how you're deploying, or it's at you know the national level in terms of where some of these um, tax incentives are coming from. How do you advise your companies in managing uh, venture scale growth while still having to bump up against the challenges that is you know the pace at which government operates? It's tough. Uh, there is no shortcuts. Um, it's tough to deal with the government. Uh, uh, I will say that um, I'm extremely bullish on the current administration and the type of the talent that they brought to the administration that are very forward-thinking people. And that's the reason, tell you the truth, why I spend the time there. Uh, because I actually think the other sides really want it. And they tell me all the time, Leo, tell us what we need to change in order to move faster. Um, so, and of course, naturally allocate 1.2 trillion and build a true strategy the infrastructure bill was the first time post-World War II that someone actually stopped for a second and said, okay, where we should invest in order to have uh, a new economy around the industrial uh, digital uh, um, uh, infrastructure. Um, but there is no shortcuts and it's, it's not a recurrent revenue and there is no CAC to LTV and there is not uh, ARR. Uh, it's different. Uh, but on the flip side, these people can give you 50, 100, a billion dollar contracts. And for a startup uh, to be able to put his hands on this size of the contract, I personally prefer that than dealing with churn and to selling 20K piece of software to manage your HR. My personal taste. Yeah, startups that have other startups as their, their customers. It's like a, a house of cards, right? Uh, risk on risk, I call it, yes. Risk on risk, exactly. And one of the cool things that, that Eclipse has done um, that you mentioned at the top of our conversation is that you're incubating ideas in addition to early stage investing and then obviously mm -hmm. supporting on it growth. I'm always curious about um, when a fund like yours will choose to build an idea in-house versus, you know, it feels like there's a, a founder out there trying to pursue every aspect of, of this industrial uh, automation or, or adaptation problem. Um, what are the things that you look for before you decide to, let's say, build versus buy? Yeah, we, it's actually, for us, it starts in the same way. We will build an investment thesis and we will go and say, hey, we are a huge believer in long duration energy storage because we believe the grid will move uh, um, much more to battery based in order to build microgrids and virtual grids. Um, let's go and find a company that's doing uh, long duration energy storage. In our case, we were uh, looking for someone that's using cedar ion because we personally believe that that will be the right architecture from a chemistry point of view. Um, and we mapped the market and we just didn't find a company that we liked enough that had the right team, right strategy, right product. And this is usually when we will go, okay, let's just go build it. Um, and we will bring someone that we call internally venture founder that have a, a, a unique skill set uh, for that particular company. In that case, it's someone uh, that was at Tesla and Oldvolt and did a lot of energy storage. And he will live with us as an employee of the firm for six to 12 months working on that idea uh, till it's a, it's, a, it's a mature enough for a company and then we'll seed fund the company. But the idea is um, originally we start building companies mainly because we are founders and operators and we didn't want to stop that motion. We just love building companies. 
Um, and I think it's turned to be something that has much more uh, a strategic aspects of what we do. Um, we still know that we are going to build three to four companies a year. Um, so it's not the majority of our business, but it's definitely a very important part of our business at Eclipse. And it's also kind of keeping us uh, very sharp on you know founding businesses and kind of being essentially in the shoes of where we usually will invest in people. So I'm I'm um, I think even more excited to have uh, this kind of uh, conversation with you more so than some of the folks that aren't building companies themselves because one of the things that our listeners love to hear is pitfalls to avoid right what what <laughs> issues could they be facing down the line that maybe they're not considering today when building in this world of physical industries of legacy industries old line and you know whatever the terminology mm-hmm. we all decide yeah. on one day right. Um, we know there's inherent resistance to change. We know there's inherent uh, business model uh, differences. What are some of the pitfalls that you see founders encounter most? And how do you advise your companies in navigating this? Yeah, um, move fast and break things. Don't walk in our industry. Because if I deploy, de- deploy an automation inside Pepsi warehouse and it's not working, I will never sell an automation again. Um, yeah. So... We are telling people, make sure that when you're deploying something, uh, the customers is actually ready. And the reality, it's never really ready. You know, you're always going to get it better, but it needs to meet the SLA. It needs to meet whatever you promise to the customers. You cannot bullshit uh, the customers in this type of sectors because you operate and selling to Fortune 50, largest energy companies in the world, largest manufacturing in the world, largest defense companies in the world, so the government, the room for error is zero. And mm-hmm. by the way, I cannot uh, uh, send a new software scrap uh, to my production and because I'm not only dealing only with bits, I'm dealing also with atoms. So yeah. any change is very different uh, than the pure uh, bits. So just going with that mindset, uh, I think it's very important. Now, on the flip side, you're creating a moat. And for the second person to replace you will be much harder for him as well. So yeah. that's why you don't see in our sector 20 companies working on the same exact problem is because it's really hot. Uh, yeah. And if you are able to do it, you will build Tesla or SpaceX or uh, Amazon or Apple or uh, now NVIDIA. Um, it's really hard to build those companies, but it's very profitable because those markets are huge. So that goes against the conventional wisdom that I'm hearing from founders who say, oh, my customers want a drop-in solution. They want mm-hmm. something that you know is is easily replacing a human on the conveyor belt or whatever it is. But but your perspective is, no, actually, you need to co-develop, essentially, with these customers at, at every stage. You need to find strategic customers or what we call design partners. Yeah. You find a champion there that give you almost a real-time feedback on what you will build. I actually yeah. think just to dropping something, you will solve point solutions that I think the outcome of whatever you solve for me, will never be that big. I'm trying mm. to transform an industry, uh, to do end-to-end stuff, uh, to do a really big stuff. And in order to do it, you must having a real-time feedback from the market. See, I, I love contrarian takes on the show, so I'm glad we already we already got one out there. Yes. Uh, maybe we'll get another one on, uh, on on this. So we're speaking at the end of Q3. By all accounts, uh, multi-quarter over quarter declines in Series A funding, Series B funding. You know, might as well be frozen. Uh, not for everybody. Uh, but yeah. but has that freeze affected the way that you're thinking about capitalizing both existing companies and then also uh, new ones that you're you're meeting? 
We will deploy this year more capital that we ever deploy in the history of the firm <laughs> on a single year. So we okay. are like great, awesome that uh, uh, I'm a I'm a fundamental conviction conviction investor. I actually don't care yeah. what the graphs are saying. I care about the type of an assets that I'm seeing and the cost of my capital and actually the size of the opportunity and. We're doing late stage deals and we do early stage and we build and we fall on. And we are, we are all of that this year. Um, we also didn't really, uh, because our model that we only lead and the largest shareholder and being super close to working with the companies on a daily basis, we never let the companies, um, I mean, never, it's a big word. We did that, sure. did that, made that mistakes many times, but in general, we don't let them run away and just basically start burning capital like madness without what we call CVD core value drivers that we will be measured with them to make sure that we are hitting inflection point. Now, if you hit inflection point in that big of a market that having transformation, you will raise capital regardless of the environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you didn't, that's harder. Yeah. And do you have benchmarks when you say, look, uh, to get to that core value driver, I want you to have 12 months or 18 months of runway. I mean, is there a general guideline that you have for your companies in that regard? Less about the runway, more about okay. the core value drivers. Show yeah. me that you can do, uh, usually we have between four to five core value drivers in each company and we will measure it every month. Either concern, tracking, overperforming, complete not tracking. This is the option that each of the partners will fill in our system. One day yeah. I'll show you that. Um, <laughs> and. As long as you hit the core value drivers, I don't care if you have six months of runway or 35 months because mm. yeah, you might be a zombie that have a lot of runway, but actually you are not changing anything in the world. It's yeah. bad use of my time. I prefer yeah. to put on someone that have six months, but is smashing the core value drivers. So I'm, I'm noticing some common traits here, right? Which is when you're building in these industries, uh, things will take longer. You Correct. have to manage your burn or do creative things to be able to get there. How do you identify these traits of scrappiness, resourcefulness, grit, resilience when you meet these founders? What are what are the you know core value drivers that you look for in these people to know that they're going to be able to execute on the core value drivers in the business? It's a great conversation that this is like one of the hottest topic inside the eclipse, eclipse for yeah. many years. Yeah. how we can constantly refine what is the CGD for the people that we are investing, not only the companies. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you that this is like, uh, be able to disagree with you. Huge core value for us. Cannot be only yes men, but to be good listeners. Mm. This combination of having strong opinion, but open to listening. Have uh, people that have a continuing view. Mm. Like something that the rest of the market is doing in one thing and they want to do it in a very different things. People that can think that big. I would say one thing that we added in the last couple of years, people that are really good selling. We learned that a lot of those companies will fail because they know how to sell or don't. And selling meaning not only to our customers, also to investors and to employees and to partners. Um, so we are constantly refining the CVD around the people. But yeah, it's uh, the toughest one to get right. Uh, it's interesting. Our typecast for our founders will be different than our friends from... Uh, the SaaS and fintech. It's actually usually, yeah. usually people in their late 30s, early 40s hey. never went to YC or anything like that. Not drop off from school, not all of these things. That being an operators for many years in SpaceX and Amazon and Tesla 
and Apple and, you know, pick your favorite. Uh, what we did uh, recently, I'm trying to think, um, uh, Northfold uh, uh, was one of them, um, Autodesk, and they're actually being a very successful operators, but they are first-time founders. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It's like usually when we talk about first-time founders, we have this idea of a kid with a hoodie and he's 23 years old, right? They, they actually, it's people with families yes. that give up their job in order to follow their dream and build something. So they are coming with much more tools as an operators that, that, that we really like. Yeah, yeah, and they have, they have the experience of maybe managing an org, which, you know, some guy in a hoodie has to learn that for the first time. Correct. By the way, then yeah. on the flip side, they are not going to work 20 hours a day in the office and weekends because they are families. Like this really yes. interesting balance. Yeah, yeah. Is there something you see in your portfolio that repeat founders do differently, and, and by that I mean better than the first-time founders? And what could the first-time founders learn from, from those experiences? So we have now multiple companies that is actually people that build with us companies exit and are doing another company. Oh, so that's high praise, um, by the way. The fact that they came back to you means that they like something. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. They, they are that crazy. Um, and I think it's too early in the journey in the second one, so I can really point on the things that they are doing different. It's just a, and it's not a very scientific answer, but they just know the shit. I don't know how to better describe it. You just. <laughs> They just, they, they are not getting worried about almost anything. They just yeah. like know exactly. They've been there. They ran out of money. They raised money. They fired people. People left them. They lost their customer. They have the muscle memory that is very, very, very uh, important in this business. It's not the only way to do it, but uh, it's definitely, I'm really curious all the time to measure the performance of our second time founders versus the first time. Yeah, I always ask that question, and, and uh, you'd be surprised how often I get an answer like yours, which is, I don't exactly know how to quantify it, but they just know the decision yeah. to make. And it's there's no real way to shortcut that if you've never been in that situation before. You just know the decision you have to make because you've seen it before. It's muscle memory. It's like muscle why, memory. You, why you take an operator uh, in the military, special forces, and you make them officers. You don't, they never go straight to being officers because you want them to have the muscle memory as, as an operator's first. Yeah, yeah. So we, we do a segment on this show that we call Hyper Hopeful. Uh, basically, I share a, a trend or theme or tailwind that's happening, and I'd love to get your perspective on whether it's hype or hopeful. Um, you know, think of it like a rapid fire round. If there's more to unpack, then, then we'll unpack it. Sound good? That's, that's it. Okay, so the first one is, uh, you know, as we're seeing this steady trend of automation uh, in blue-collar jobs and legacy industries with higher promises of, of efficiency and better cost savings, we're also seeing this fear of widespread job losses. Do you think that this adoption of automation across these industries is going to be an overall hopeful shift or hype that VCs like us are pumping up because, you know, we, we believe in it? I'm a huge hopeful on that. Uh, so, uh, and actually, I'm drinking my own cooler. But uh, I think, you know, you just, you don't need to guess. You can go to the books of history and see what the print uh, press did to the print industries and how many more jobs it's been created. It's, it's happened so many times in the history that um, uh, providing a new type of an efficiency or productivity tools or technology will have a massive gain of creating a new jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting too, from our perspective on the PR side, uh, it's, it's so funny to me when I see, you know, 
job shortages in the same industry that has fears about robots taking jobs. <laughs> how can it be the how can it be the same thing? You know what I mean? You can't can't yeah. have shortages and fears of, of robotics, but ultimately um, that is part of the reason that you know we do what we do, which is helping tell yeah. that story in a way that makes people not uh, not so afraid. Um, totally. So talking about this transition to uh, to automation, you know. I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the right way to think about this. Uh, business models is is one of the the challenges that we see from companies. Robotics as a service is a new business model that we've seen proposed. Seems like a great idea. Oh, I'm building recurring revenue as opposed to you know doing procurement-based mm-hmm. financing. But then you realize that you're adding a new operational complexity on top of already the the, the thing that you're selling. Have you seen robotics as a service uh, work in your portfolio or is it hype or hopeful? So up till recently, I would say it was a hype. Um, I mean, the first time we have a company uh, that doing that in a very successful um, way in the retail space uh, that started turning me to be hopeful. Uh, and I think what the, the main thing that gets me hopeful is the customers that now putting the spend in their OPEX budget rather than in their CAPEX budget and understand yeah. that this is where it should sit that I just didn't see it happening before. And, and and what does this company do? I mean, tell us a little bit more about it. A company called Symbi Robotics. They basically uh, they have those robots that uh, during nighttime will go inside the retail store or grocery, and they have 28 cameras. They basically scan the whole store, building a 3D uh, map and an inventory uh, map of what's happening in the store. And they give the real-time uh, results of that and the analytics to the store. So the store know what was the shrinkage, where they are missing product, where they have the mispricing on the product, how yes. much uh, uh, handle shoulders they were selling versus the other day, that and which product that they're selling more. And it's just there is a very strong ROI to the customers in a matter of three months, and they don't sell it. They just charge $2,500 uh, per month as a subscription. That's fascinating. So for, for our listeners, I don't know, at my, uh, my last fund, I backed a company called Data Assembly, which was doing this from a software perspective. And it blew my mind that large grocery chains, you know, if you're listening, probably your local grocery chain, most of them pay consultants to walk down these aisles Correct. with Pen an iPad paper. or a clipboard and just yeah. take that. It's In 2023, it's crazy to me that that's how we are we're managing this. And the reason it's so important, again, is, you know, a 50 cent mispricing because of the volume they're selling turns into, you know, 50K loss potentially uh, at the end of the month. So uh, I love that, by the way. I, I, I know maybe more about this industry than I should. Um, yeah. that's a, that's a very, very unique solution, uh, to, to go after that problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll do one last hyper hopeful. Uh, we were chatting about Washington and, and politics. I'm going to stay away from the red blue of it all, but you know, we've <laughs> seen bills like the IRA chips act infrastructure bill promising substantial funds to, to foster clean energy transition in these legacy industries. It's also a political football a little bit, right? So are you hopeful that these initiatives are going to ultimately mean more opportunity for startups? Is it hype or hopeful? Current administration, I say it's hopeful. Uh, okay. The next one, I do not know. Uh, I would say historically, I was hyped. Yeah. And 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 why is that? Is it just uh, the, the pace a, of a, execution? It's a, it's a combination of three things. The quality of the talent that they were able to bring, uh, people yeah. from the industry, uh, is the strategy. They actually stop for a second to understand what is the strategy of this in- this infrastructure bill. And I think the third one is the openness and understanding 
that all of that will come from the private sector, not the government sector. So they know that they need the private sector to uh, carry uh, the weight and they want to partner with us as much as they can. Yeah. Okay. That's that, that's helpful. So we'll we'll wrap up on Hyper Hopeful there. A couple of questions I'd love to, to hear on, you know, future predictions and, and, and market tailwinds. You know, you've said that it's 100 trillion of GDP, 80% of it comes from physical industries. Right. Given the size and scale of these physical industries, as well as some of the historical resistance to change, are there two or three that you're looking at right now that you think are ripe for, for innovation in the next decade? A really good question. Um, I'll tell you where we spend the time and kind of like, it's, again, no, that's our prediction. I don't know if it will be right or wrong. Uh, I would say three industries that we spend a lot of our time, it's the manufacturing industry, um, that I think having just a tremendous change uh, from this uh, globalization or deglobalization issues, geopolitics issues, and also product life cycle. People, I mean, we have a company that's building servers. Now people are now customers building three, four, five different servers every year. It used to be you build one server every five years. So you just can't do it uh, in Asia anymore. Um, so manufacturing would be the first one. I think the energy is the second one. I think electrification and in general renewable um, will be massive. Um, and I think we are going to see more like a standalone private companies being built very large outcome out of that that also will do good for the world. So I think you went twice over there. And I think that third one will be the industrial sector, what I would call uh, that not only industrial can be fairly broad, but, you know, I think like industrial companies that uh, we see some big changes coming out of them because they need better productivity than ever. And because the labor shortage, those two things just killing them. They cannot grow. And it's clear for them that they are going to put a lot of money into technology to try to solve uh, basically productivity gain and, and, and the shortage that they are seeing uh, with uh, people in order to go and continue to grow. So that's kind of a three sectors we spend a lot of time on. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling because I feel like you're writing my, uh, my fun two LP deck for me here, Lior. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's exactly <laughs> where we like <laughs> to spend our court. time. I know. Exactly. I, I might as well. Um, so you know, you've, uh, <laughs> um, you, you've also talked about this idea of investing in founders and opportunities that are obviously not just uh, better businesses, but also better prospects uh, for the planet. You, you just referenced that uh, in our last conversation. Um, can you share a story of a portfolio company where you kind of saw that the alignment of you could build a massive business, but also have this better for the planet vision? Yeah, so we have this thing, we call it the three Ps internally, and it's productivity, people, planet. Um, we, are, we are not a climate investor. Or we are not... Um, uh, um, Nonprofit uh, um, impact investors. We we are here to make money to our endowments uh, and pension funds. Um, but I do believe there is this something amazing in operating in cutting edge technology in the physical world. And I will give you an example. If I can manufacturing this product, um, uh, my 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 AirPods, and I yeah. can increase the yield in one percent, meaning reduce the scrap in one percent. There is a carbon footprint to that 1% that yes. we save by technology. And we started a report called ECO, Eclipse Carbon Optimization, that we release every year, that we are trying to capture the value of our companies on the environment. Now, this is not their business. Their business is to automate the manufacturing of the airport. Um, but there is a side uh, value that 
can be more impactful for the environment than actually companies that directly focusing on the environment. And we want to capture that value and, and, and quantify that. And that's why we're doing every other report. So this is on the planet. Soon we will also talk about what we are doing on the people reports. Goes back to your questions on yeah. automation, good or bad, and things like that. Dior, you've been so wonderful with your time today. I'll, I'll close with a question that we ask all of our guests. You know, there is a lot of doom and gloom out there in terms of the lack of climate action. Um, we're we're seeing hundreds of billions of dollars being spent by oil and gas and uh, traditional industries, saying things are okay, everything's all right. Um, and naturally, it can lead to to a little bit of uh, you know climate anxiety. You seem like a pretty optimistic guy. What is one thing that gives you hope and optimism broadly in this, whether it's better it was, for the planet or even this uh, this industrial transformation that we've been talking about? A to to start by saying I'm concerned as a parent, uh, yeah. and you know to look on um, uh, the amount of. Um, weather insanity that we are seeing in the last couple of years, I think, you know, nobody can, regardless what you believe again, and from political point of view, nobody can ignore anymore that uh, yeah. this globe is getting super hot. And as a result, we're going to see some very extreme weather situation. Um, the thing I am bullish about, uh, because go back to I'm um, a fundamental investors and builder, uh, do I believe the world will move much more to use renewable energies than less? 100%. Now, the yeah. question how long it will take and what damage we're going to do to this globe by then. Uh, but I know that the, at the end game will be that. Um, and I think we are going to get technology into a place that it will be stupid to use something that it's not uh, clean and efficient. Uh, as we were saying in other industries, we are not there yet on the energy side, but it's yeah. getting there. You see penetration on electric vehicle, you see... Uh, the amount of uh, megawatts that are uh, being brought into the network that based on batteries and others, it's, it's, it's going to. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree with you. I think um, ultimately you have to make the business case to, to people, you know, to consumers and to businesses, right? And uh, moving because it's sustainable, moving because it's green, no, moving because you're getting can. some tax incentives, yes. that's very short term, right? Yes. We have to make the, the, the business case. Money talk. Nobody at the end of the day, it's it's... Market goes up, market goes down, this administration, other administration, and that's what we do in our companies. Your business model needs to be sustainable regardless of the environment. And yeah. if you're able to do it, good things will happen. You will get massive adoption, and we as a society will be able to enjoy that. That's a great place to leave it. Lior, thank you so much yeah. for your time, for sharing your insights uh, with our listeners, with me today. Um, and we're excited to, to follow all the amazing things that Eclipse is going to be doing in the, uh, in the many years to come. So thank you for your time today. Jay, pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Climb by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Ramiro for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.